Namaste everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. Today we're going to be talking about another book. This book is called How Hitchens Can Save the Left, Rediscovering Fearless Liberalism in an Age of Counter-Enlightenment. It is written by Matt Johnson and to talk about it, we have Matt. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. So Matt, why did you decide to write this book of all the books? <laughs> Uh, well, I kind of got into Hitchens early in my uh, college career, and I think I was attracted to him for the reason that you know many people get sort of sucked into the Hitchens rabbit hole on on YouTube. Um, he's he's just such an eloquent and, and ferocious speaker and debater. And um, then I, I I realized that his politics aligned with mine um, across a pretty broad array of issues. So uh, the issues I cover in the book are free speech, uh, internationalism, individual rights, things like that. Um, and I, I sort of started to realize that these were uh, direct extensions of the Enlightenment and Enlightenment thought. And I think in many cases, they're endangered these days. So uh, I decided to um, write a, a, sort of, a sort of defense of and reaffirmation of those values uh, through the lens of, of Hitchens's work. And you know, it was really fun to write. And I, I've been thinking about the guy for a long time. So uh, here's the product. So Matt, let's start here. What is your favorite hitch slap? That's the most famous thing about Hitchens, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There are just so many of them. Um, like, like I was saying, I think a lot of people discover him because there, there is this huge library of, of hitch slaps uh, on YouTube. Yeah. My favorite hitch slap, I would probably have to say it's when he went on Fox News after the death of Jerry Falwell and said, if, if you gave Falwell an enema, he could be buried in a matchbox. So I think that was a pretty, pretty brutal one. And uh, Sean Hannity was sitting, uh, sitting in the studio looking aghast and alarmed. And I, I think, I think he realized that it was a mistake to have Hitchens on to talk. I think this was back in the Hannity and Colmes days. So they were attempting to be these sort of um, centrist uh, stragglers, you know? So, <laughs> yeah. I, I think my personal, uh, I have two personal favorite hit slaps. Uh, if somebody was to ask me, number one is when I think someone told Christopher Hitchens that, uh, you know, you say all these things about religion and my sentiments are hurt. Hitchens, to paraphrase, says, I'm still waiting for you to make a point. Yeah, <laughs> that yeah. was so funny. That was so horrible. I was like, man, he's so brutal. He, he doesn't care. And, uh, and I, he's like, and your point is kind of a thing. Uh, yeah, yeah. was all, always about those things. And and the other was, I think it was, that's a famous um, video on YouTube too, where somebody, this was when he wrote the book, The God is Not Great. And somebody in the audience goes up to Hitchens and says, you know, I'm a Sufi Muslim. Obviously, I, these are not the exact words Hitchens used, but I'm paraphrasing them, like I'm a Sufi Muslim. And, you know, I believe in... Um, Allahu Akbar and the God is great. And why did you keep the title of your book? God is not great. Was it done to hurt my sentiments? And Hitchens just looks straight into that person's eyes and says, yes, sir. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> yeah. Yes, sir. Oh, I know. I know. He's, oh, uh, he's definitely more lacerating than I could ever hope to be. Yeah, I think, I think in that case, um, the, the questioner said something like, did, did you have to write a book that has a title that's like the literal negation of Allahu Akbar? And then Hitchens is just like, yes, yes, I did. <laughs> and the, the best part is there is a yes. And then there is a two second pause. And then he explains the yes. So so he, he absolutely wanted to clarify that the answer to that question was just yes. Yeah. That's all. 
and yeah, you there, don't owe me anything and i don't owe you anything uh, you know there, we could just go back and forth on these for the next three hours i would assume but the, there's a video of hitchens sitting in this park talking about diana spencer uh who he was very hard on and some guy came walking over to him and said you have no right to be here you have no right to say these things about i mean i don't know if they were nearby where where a memorial happens to be for her or what and hitchens just whirls on the guy and just goes who the hell are you you know this just shows you what kind of brain rot sets in when people hold these dogmas so it's just he just he was was never afraid to just rip into somebody in person two feet away from them or in a studio or, or what have you so yeah i think again i mean that, that's why i started as i did i really do think that these these are probably the videos that initially attract you know an 18 year old to to hitchens and you know i just I, I just hope that my book can maybe inspire some of those folks out there consuming the hitch slap content to maybe dig in a little deeper maybe read a couple of his books and a couple of his long form essays so yeah so full disclosure i've only read two of his books one was the god is not great yeah and the other is the missionary position the famous uh, book of christopher hitchens along with the i think it was a bengali researcher uh, and journalist who helped him in india to to go and study what happens in the ashram of yeah. uh, mother teresa and um, those are the two books i read i obviously you know i went through a lot of uh, uh, video content when it comes to christopher hitchens but the books i've read are only these two now let's talk about the first bit which is uh, something so there are two things maybe that i want to focus on the most because uh i know hitchens's uh, foreign policy statements are the ones that get him the most brickbats but honestly as an indian maybe i could never relate to the american foreign policy uh, in iraq or anything of that's i i mean i don't have an opinion on it to be very honest so mm-hmm. i i never understood but two things about christopher hitchens attracted me the most let's start with the first one which is freedom of expression i, I, I live in india a country where uh, free speech uh, at a conceptual level does not exist in comparison to america uh, it's not like it exists in canada before somebody thinks canada is some virtuous place where you have freedom of expression you don't this concept mm-hmm. is very unique to america the first amendment is very unique to america the indian first amendment i i, I urge everyone to go and read the indian first amendment whenever i meet americans i tell them so you have your first amendment now go and read the indian first amendment it's the complete opposite of what the first amendment does indian first amendment curbs free speech the american one actually guarantees free speech so so what was christopher hitchens and his stand if i was to uh to ask you or when it comes to free speech Well, first of all, uh, one of the reasons I think Hitchens valued the United States so much, and one of the reasons why he moved to the United States, um, is the existence of what he described as the great roof of the First Amendment, because he came from Britain, uh, a country that doesn't have a constitution, so it certainly doesn't have anything comparable to the First Amendment. And actually, when Hitchens was um, in Britain, and I believe until the end of his life, he was a supporter of a movement called Charter 88. which was an attempt to actually establish a written constitution in Britain along the lines of the American constitution. So um that that was one of those things even when Hitchens was the staunchest critic of US foreign policy um he still admired the constitution and still admired the fact that that we have we have this really firm um defender bulwark uh, for free speech in the country. And even a lot of the most radical left-wingers who were the most critical of the United States will will also find time to to uh, express their 
support for the First Amendment. Noam Chomsky is an example. He he often says, you know, <laughs> Americans like to pretend like we're these hardcore dissidents, but we have we have a really broad um, range of we have a really broad latitude when it comes to uh, free expression. But yeah, Hitchens was just this is one of those issues. You know, politically, Hitchens obviously um, evolved in in uh, many key areas, but um, on the question of free speech, he was very close to perfectly consistent. Um, if you watch uh, the a video of Hitchens on C-SPAN um, right after the Rushdie fatwa, um, his his defense of free expression is just every bit as articulate and, and fierce as it would be in in the uh, in the following decades. So he sounded exactly the same. Um, when he was, you know, when he was arguing for the necessity of, of publishing um, the Yellen's Posted uh, cartoons during the Danish cartoon controversy in the mid aughts, um, he, he sounded exactly the same throughout, you know, the '90s. Whenever there was any uh, any question uh, surrounding free speech, so he this is just a, a position that he held so intensely, and he sort of took Mill's line on free speech, where it's not just uh, the right of the speaker to speak or the writer to write, but it's the right of the audience to listen. So he thought civil society was built upon this concept. He said, if the right to free expression goes, then so do all other rights as well. Um, so he just saw it as the sort of master value that we had to defend, you know, all the more, all the more um, sort of fiercely for that reason. Now, a, a very significant part of your chapter on the, you know, the freedom of expression bit, which you call First Amendment absolutism's Hitchens on free expression, it has focused with, you know, uh, on uh, two central issues. One was Islamism and Hitchens and his battle against the Rashti Fatwa. And not only just that, you also talk about Ayan Harsi Ali uh, later on uh, in the same chapter where Hitchens has to rise again and again or whether it's the Charlie Hebdo case and things. That is one aspect. And the other is um, Hitchens and his back and forth with, uh, I think, uh, I would say far-right Christian conservatism where I think he pretty much won the war. Now, if I was to ask you, do you think one of the aims of this book that you have written is that Hitchens and his principles in today's, I don't know what word should I use, uh, in today's uh, godless religion that has engulfed America, which is loosely and colloquially called Vokism, W-O-K-E-I-S-M. Um, I mean, it's like a religion. It's very, very much structured around Christianity and the principles of Christianity as, as an outsider to me. So do you think Hitchens would have stood up to those principles even today where... Uh, you know, the attacks on the First Amendment are coming from all sorts of angles where you can't say this, you can't say that uh, in the United States of America. Um, well, first of all, I, I think the, the claim that Hitchens uh, sort of won the battle <laughs> against the reactionary religious right in the United States. Um, I, I would be delighted if that was the case. But as somebody who still uh, lives in the heartland uh, at the moment, I can I can declare with some certainty that uh, it's a it's an ongoing battle and probably will be until the end of my life. Um, so it's that, and that's something Hitchens always said because he always said, you know, religion is ineradicable. He always said the religious impulse is ineradicable. Um, on the question of wokeness, so this is something I've had cause to think about uh, at, at some length um, because there there have actually been essays about Hitchens and what he might have thought about this sort of liberal turn on the left, uh, this you know, commitment to identitarianism, 
Um, I make the case in the second chapter of my book, uh, which is titled Sinister Bullshit. Um, it's, it's about identity politics and what Hitchens might have thought. That I, I don't think he would have had um, much patience for the sort of shrieking, censorious, identity-based politics that, that has really become common in the United States. Because he actually, he actually calls out identity politics directly in uh, letters to a young contrarian and in his memoir. I mean, he said when the left started moving in that direction, he thought it was abandoning its, its most important principle, which is universalism, which is just the idea that you should vote on the basis of, you know, principles and, and ideas and that you shouldn't be concerned with, you know, the, the race or the gender or the sexuality of the people you're voting for. And, you know, that's, that's something that's sort of anathema to the, the current left in the United States. I mean, even the mainstream left, um, it, it is seen as perfectly natural for the president of the United States to say, um, I am going to the next Supreme Court justice that I um, that I nominate will be a, a black woman, you know, and then he did, did end up nominating Ketanji Brown Jackson, who's who's just eminently qualified for the position. I mean, I, I, I'm glad that we have her on the Supreme Court. Um, I think it was overdue that there would be a black woman on the Supreme Court. But what's strange is that he, he said that in advance. And he said it for political reasons, obviously, um, he got a lot of credit for it at the time. And it's one of those things where I, I thought, yeah, wouldn't it be better if he just nominated her? I mean, did he have to say it's got to be a black woman? She's got to just any black woman, you know, I mean, because that's what he originally said. And this is the sort of thing that you just see on the left all all the time now. And I think Hitchens would have seen that as a sort of negation of the the individualism and a negation of, of just the idea that, that you you vote on the basis or you nominate on the basis of uh, principles and like, in this case, judicial philosophy. Um, so I, I don't think Hitchens would have had much patience for, for wokeism as it is. Um, on the question of its religious tendencies, uh, this is something I used to be much more critical of than I am today. Um, I, I, I kind of, I, I saw this weird tendency to um, ascribe religious characteristics to a lot of different movements a few years ago. And, and I, I remember people making the argument that the religious impulse isn't going away, even as a, a country like the United States secularizes. People are just channeling uh, those impulses into different things. So they're, they're becoming more obsessed with this sort of identitarianism or they're becoming obsessed with the conspiracy theories or, you know, just just regular political tribalism. This is all we're, we're treating all of these things um, as sort of like r religious touchstones. And I, I was originally very suspicious of that, though I've actually had cause to reassess that position uh, in recent years, just because especially after the George Floyd killing. Um, there really was this kind of convulsion of identitarianism in the United States. And, you know, John McWhorter wrote this book called Woke Racism, where he sort of makes the case that this is a new religion. Um, and I think I think I'm more sympathetic to the idea now just because of the fervor with which people hold hold these views. And, you know, just because of episodes like the, the one I, I often use um, as an example is when I, I saw this community of people and there were these these white people kneeling in front of their black neighbors and they were doing it to sort of like, to say, it was is this weird self-flagellating exercise where you're like atoning for previous sins, you know, and it, there was just something about that, that that struck me as odd and struck me as sort of religious. So, uh, yeah, that's that's my best um, my best summary of where Hitchens might be today. And, you know, just just what we're dealing with <laughs> in terms of the shift toward wokeism, such as it is. So, OK, now you're going to have to give me some time and I apologize in advance because uh, it's going to take me some time to make my case against Christopher Hitchens here. Um, so I'll, I might have to share my personal story. Uh, I was a 20-year-old uh, 
living uh, I, I think it was 19 when i first came to the united states of america my brother was studying in michigan tech university at that time i'd gone there for the first time in a very small university town so on my flight to america i and i apologize to my listeners because they've heard the story again but you've not for you to get a context i have to share the story so there was a bunch of christian missionaries who were on the plane with me and one of them was a drummer i was a drummer at that time and you know drummers have they fiddle a lot with their hands and legs it's just a habit because you're constantly doing the weird thing uh, of moving your hands and legs all the time and and i just saw the guy sitting right beside in the plane and i was like are you a drummer and that guy was yes i am one and then we started discussing music and from this music we went to jesus and i was like where am i going and then i realized this this person is part of a 16 person group and they were trying to convert me to christianity uh, now for me that thought was so alien is because i'm from a hindu background and hindus don't go out and convert people actively proselytization is not like a thing thing in in hindu society so that was the biggest shock for me and then i land in america my brother's roommate is a pakistani muslim he tries to convert me to islam so in <laughs> in 48 hours my life changed i was like what the hell is happening to me right now why <laughs> why is my life be suddenly changing and that's when i decided i was like i need to read religion so i started reading abrahamic religion so i started with the quran and the bible and i and then as the natural progression goes i got attracted to what are now called the famous four horsemen and hitchens being one of them so i went into a rabbit hole of reading all of them whether it's dawkins rit Hitchens, Dennett, Harris, all of them. And there were many more. I think there were like famous fourteen or sixteen books that atheists had written at that time, and new atheism was a thing. And then I became a new atheist. Today, I don't even like to call myself an atheist, although I'm still a disbeliever. But I have separated myself from that tag because I think new atheism actually destroyed so many things. and Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins especially i respect them as intellectuals but at the same time i literally blame new atheism <laughs> for the destruction of the fabric of american society where they threw they literally believed in throwing the baby out with the bathwater and all they did was actually the very wokeism that hitchens would have hated where he kind of caused it Well, there is a sort of strange um, progression from new atheism to these other positions in the United States. This is something that's sort of cropped up on Reddit and in other places. I haven't paid that much attention to it as a sociological phenomenon, but I am told that um, many of the new atheists ended up either becoming sort of woke or they became sort of Christian nationalists or they just sort of because I think I think it's it's slightly unsurprising in some ways just because Um, I, I can vividly recall when I was introduced to that sort of uh, material. Like I remember when I watched my first couple of Dawkins debates. I remember reading The God Delusion for the first time. Um, and and you know I grew up in in a town called Salina, Kansas. Um, it's it's three hours to the west of of Kansas City. Um, it's just one of those places where ninety five percent of of the people you meet are are Christian, and many of them are, are quite serious Christians. Um, so it felt transgressive. It felt sort of um, it, it 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 felt really risque to <laughs> like start questioning um, the things that you were that you were raised with. And really, I didn't didn't really start thinking about it in any depth until probably junior year of high school. I mean, it's just one of those things. I was, I was always sort of nominally Christian. Um, I never considered myself a very very serious Christian, but it was just sort of the water that that we swam in. Um, so I think that that sort of shock realization that. 
um, as Hitchens would put it, what the authorities are telling me on religion um, might not be might not be uh, true. I think that's that lead that can lead to a sort of radicalism and it can sort of be intoxicating. Um, and that, that may have happened with some people. They may have sort of discovered new atheism, discovered that it, it gave them this sort of high and then moved on to other things. Um, but there are a lot of people who who had the same experience as me and who just kind of went on to be normal people. I mean, it's just like I, I think the the influence of the new atheists and this is I, I, I'll full disclosure. I actually still think that they're quite valuable. I think that pushback was overdue in the United States and around the world. Um, and I actually just had a conversation recently um, with some folks at the Free Speech Union um, in Britain, the Free Speech Organization in Britain. And we talked about um, the fact that there are many people in closed societies and repressive societies who have reported that discovering Hitchens, Dawkins, uh, Dennett, Harris, um, all those guys was, was really a, a breath of fresh air for them because they had never, they'd never, like, they didn't want some, like, milk toast liberal critique of religion like they 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 were sick of it you know they were sick of of the the repressive tendencies of religion and just the the sheer suffocating power of religion in their lives and then you find these people who are just ripping it to shreds and i think it was it was quite a quite a illuminating moment for them and i just think and what i said in that podcast was it's really difficult to deny their testimony to say like because i can say easily that maybe the maybe the new atheists were too militant or maybe the new atheists uh, led to more polarization um, and maybe they, you know, created more heat than light to use the cliche, but there are a lot of people in the world who say that they were really pivotal, um, to, um, introducing them to liberal values, to the fact that there can be a secular alternative to these repressive theocratic states that they grew up in. And, you know, to the extent that that's true of Hitchens or Harris or any of those guys, uh, I, I have to, you know, my hat has to be off to them. Um, and I still think that their arguments against religion are by and large fairly good. I mean, they're pretty radical. They're pretty militant, but. At the same time, I think, you know, if if our society can't absorb and debate those questions uh, like grownups instead of descending into a morass of, of tribalism and woke stupidity, well, then that's kind of we're all the poorer for it. Um, but I don't, I don't even think you could have anticipated um, if you were Dawkins writing The God Delusion in the mid aughts that it could end up being this engine of, of sort of like weird 4 chanization of, of people and this weird sort of like shift toward radicalism on a bunch of other issues so that that's my that's my uh defense of of the new atheists such as it is fair enough but it's 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 kind of interesting to see richard dawkins now when pierce morgan asked him to comment of on islamism and he refused to comment which is which is very interesting that the man has come a long way and the same richard dawkins if pierce morgan would have asked him to comment on christianity he would have happily commented on it. I don't know if you saw the recent. Uh, I didn't. I didn't actually here. see the clip. I saw the clip. It was strange. What I thought was it was probably a case where Dawkins um, maybe wanted to talk about his latest book or something like that, and had told producers beforehand that that was the case. And then Piers Morgan just didn't either didn't get the memo or didn't care, and just decided he wanted to talk about that. And I think that that might have pissed Dawkins off because I've seen. I swear I've seen Dawkins actually debate. Um, you know, Muslim scholars. And I've, I've heard him comment on, on Islam before. By the way, this is something that, that Douglas Murray once uh, criticized Dawkins for. Because he, he, was, he was interviewed a long time ago, many years ago. And he was talking about the God of the Bible. And he was talking about the Abraham. He, he just said, you know, it's, it's the, the most horrific character in all of fiction. Like that was the classic Dawkins line, which is, you know, it's a pretty good one. You have to hand it to him. And then um, Islam came up and he just said, oh, you know, Islam I know less about. Like in that interview. And Douglas Murray said, well, this is just an example of, you know, the, the long tentacles of 
international jihadism sort of intimidating this great biologist into silence, you know, and whatnot. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I feel like he has commented on Islam before. I don't think he's just com like stayed completely mum about it, but I would assume he's more focused on Christianity because, you know, he lives, lives in the West. Um, but that's, you know, yeah. It, if you want to, if you want to like unpack what you're, what you're thinking on that, or do you think that he was just, um, do you think he was just too afraid to bring up Islam or, or why do you think he was, uh, I just think it, I think Islamism broke the back of liberalism. If you ask me, uh, it's it's pretty evident in the global discourse. Uh, I mean, uh, would Dawkins and I'm quoting Dawkins from the God Delusion? Do you think Dawkins would ever say the something like this for Islamism? I, I this is the quote you were talking about, right? The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, seromasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. This is the quote, right? This is the that's one. The that's the this, one. Yeah, yeah, that's the one quote you're talking about because I still remember it, uh, uh, the, reading the God delusion in my 20s and this quote stuck with me. Uh, but I think, uh, I don't know, it could, I mean, if we were to function on the principle of charity, which you are, we should assume that that's what happened with Dawkins. But I really don't know because I, I do remember it was just five, six years ago, Mehdi Hassan was interviewing uh, Dawkins and uh, Dawkins asked Mehdi Hassan, so do you believe uh, the Prophet Muhammad sat on a flying horse and mm -hmm. winged horse and went upstairs. And Mehdi Hassan said, Richard, you don't believe in miracles? And Dawkins said, you actually believe he went on a horse. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that was the same yeah. Dawkins. But things have changed in, in British society. And uh, since then, a lot of water has flown under the bridge. So I don't know. Only Richard Dawkins can clarify this misconception. So, you know, people can assume that he was just not interested in talking about it because that was not the part of uh, the agenda or it could very well be that, you know, like I said, Islamism has broken the back of liberalism where a long time ago. And I think uh, a significant section of uh, liberal politics is in denial about it. If you ask me, I mean, I personally identify as a liberal myself. Um, I'm not a left liberal. I would say some someone who's more center-right personally. But uh, I, I see this blind spot in the entire liberal discourse where um, Islamophobe... And Hitchens, th this is where Hitchens was unique. Because Hitchens, I'm sure, would not have uh, surrendered to this, you know, the stick of uh, Islamism with, uh, that they have. And they, every time you pull out the Islamophobia card, I think... Like, I get a lot of uh, flack from the Hindu community because I have a huge problem with the term Hinduphobia. I just think it's a pathetic term. I mean, what is Hinduphobia? I don't agree with that term either. Before somebody comes at me, oh, you're you're just picking on Islam. No, I am saying even Hindu-phobia as a term is fake. Now somebody will say, but you have used that title in your podcast. What am I supposed to do if people are claiming that term? I'm supposed to use that term in the title of my podcast. But I still don't believe the concept to be a legitimate concept. But at a personal level, I've actually grown out of new atheism. I think I, I don't see that uh, that way of living your life to be a very healthy way. Maybe I'll explain this in from my cultural experience. Does the religion of my society have problems? Absolutely, yes. Do I criticize 
that religion? Hell yes. Do I criticize Hindu practices? Yes. Someone just has to search my podcast to see how many episodes I've done on multiple problems in, in Indian society. I'm not mad at Hinduism. I'm really not mad. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. just not mad at it. Uh, the kind of anger I sense in people who originally come from Abrahamic backgrounds and then they dump Abrahamism. It's almost as if their atheism is a replica of their religion. And their, their atheism is also as angry as their religion, which is, which is something I felt when I read Christopher Hitchens too, because I will never forget this. The God is Not Great had detailed chapters about everything. But when Hitchens wrote, the East has no solution either. That was the chapter, right? Mm -hmm. That was the title of the chapter. Yeah. Eight pages, nine pages. And what was his critique? Oh, Osho said this. Oh, this guru leave said leave that. Leave your that's shoes, not... and, shoes and minds at yeah. the door and yeah. just extrapolate. Yeah, no, that's true. It was definitely not a, a deep engagement yeah, with I mean... uh, Eastern religious thought. Yeah. Which is why I I never took any anything Hitchens said on my culture and society seriously. The only person in the West who has come close to understanding one framework in India from the West is actually Sam Harris. He does understand mm -hmm. a part of Buddhism at at some level. He does not get uh, Veda Advaita. He he only understands Advaita of one school. He does not get a lot of Advaita Vedanta either. He's just trained by one school when he was you know in his hippie phase in india and this is this is the classic difference where this is why eventually i'm going to write a book why i'm not an atheist although i an atheist in the west will look at me and say how are you different from me and maybe that's the book i'll write but on this question of atheism again do you think uh, or, or is there a realization even in the atheistic movement in the west where uh, people even realize why are they so angry I find Western atheists to be very angry. Yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like it's died down a little bit. I just I think the uh, new atheism movement um, went through this this phase of sort of militancy and radicalism. And it just doesn't feel it doesn't feel like there's such a, a powerful atheistic push uh, in the United States anymore. I mean, I, you know, Hitchens did, did this tour, this book tour, where he went to all of these churches and all these religious institutions, you know, through the Bible Belt, through the South. And um, there were just these huge events. I mean, there's one, you know, is a debate with William Lane Craig that you can find on YouTube. I mean, it's just this packed house uh, at Biola University, which is a Christian university. And, you know, there are people watching from all around the world. Is, is that happening now? I mean, I don't, I don't feel like it is. So I do think that, um, I mean, you know, I, it, it's funny <laughs> as somebody who was once, you know, among, I'm like the staunchest new atheists that you you would have met um i actually had a conversation on on the podcast uh, decoding the gurus recently where i i did criticize hitchens for being being too strident i mean i i don't think because one of hitchens's big projects um was attempting to support you know secularists liberals um even they don't even have to be secularists i mean they can just be uh, like liberal muslims uh, around the world. And and if you go around and accuse them of believing in a stupid fabrication and uh, a religion that's just like a, a disease of the mind, then you're you're probably alienating a lot of potential political allies, uh, you know, and, and Hitchens. Yeah, he would have agreed with you that the, the terms like Hindu phobia or Christianophobia or Islamophobia were, were idiotic. I mean, he, he thought Islamophobia was, was one of the most uh, sinister words in the sort of new lexicon. 
um, because he just he recognized that what people were trying to do was paint legitimate criticism of doctrines and ideas as a criticism of Muslims as people, as some form of, of bigotry. Um, and Hitchens really didn't have any patience for that. Um, but it's interesting. You know, I, I think he was. I'm actually kind of curious about how you how you reconcile the view that the new atheists are uh, really too aggressive and were too angry and, and all that stuff with your view that Islam has broken the liberal world. I mean, I feel like if you do think that the Islamism, not Islam, but Islamism uh, has sort of like broken the back of liberalism in the West, then I would assume you would actually like welcome a bit of militancy and welcome a bit of aggression. So maybe we can get back to that in a second. But um, I, I, I do, I do think that, uh, Hitchens, Hitchens is sort of opposition to Islamism or creeping theocracy in the West, um, was something that he, it, it's something that probably hasn't aged all that well. I mean, because I just think that, you know, this was, this was directly after September 11th. I mean, the, the decade Hitchens last decade, um, was the decade after September the 11th. And this is when it was easier to concoct a sort of civilizational threat out of out of Islam, radical Islam. And I think now people look back at that and say, well, that's kind of dated him as an intellectual figure, um, you know, because nowadays I would say that the much bigger threats in the world are arising China, our Russian uh, aggression are, you know, even climate change or something like it just like these seem like more pressing the, the rise of AI or, something. you know, whereas, you know, like the threat of of jihadist world domination i mean that never really struck me as as all that real you know it's terrifying and it leads to a lot of suffering all you have to do is look at the rise of the islamic state um in, in iraq and syria uh you know about six or seven years ago to see just how much chaos and, and pain this this can uh, wreak on the world but at the same time you know it, it I, I think hitchens probably overstated the threat to some to some extent um and you know that's not to say that he was wrong to attempt to like attempt to defend liberal values as broadly as possible and always always uh critic he was always critical of the idea that the muslim world is one big whole that it's all it's all just the muslims so when donald trump wanted to ban the muslims you know from the country some people like matt glacius were saying oh you know hitchens would would support trump because he he was critical of islam um but i you know i've, I've written at length about how I, I don't think that's the case because hitchens always recognized that there are many schisms in the muslim world he always recognized that you know you can't treat it as as one giant singular uh, cohesive whole uh, you know there's a lot of uh, dynamism and diversity in the muslim world um so i i just think that his brutal takedowns of islam as as a set of ideas um have sort of skewed people's perception of what his actual political purpose was. And they've, they've made people overlook the areas where Hitchens, um, Hitchens actually was, was, was trying to sort of reach out to, to moderate Muslims or, or, you know, reform minded Muslims or you know, however you want to describe it. And he wrote a lot about that, you know, and he used to say like a, he, any Muslims who were aligned with the United States and he would instance like the Northern Alliance um, Afghanistan, or he would instance um, the Kurds in, in northern Iraq, and he would say, like, there's no point at which they should ever find themselves friendless or unarmed if they're allies of the United States. And he would he would say them he would refer to them as Muslims. He wouldn't just say the Kurds or just say the Northern Alliance. So um, I, I just think that this idea that he was some anti-Muslim bigot, which you'll hear from people like Glenn Greenwald today or Chris Hedges, uh, is is complete bullshit it always has been complete bullshit i mean these are guys who actually just didn't read hitchens like they they sort of read god is not great and then just decided to 
rip him and, and call him, you know, a genocidal maniac and all this stuff. But, you know, this is one of the reasons why I wrote the book is because most people don't have that memory of Hitchens, but there is still this sort of like misrecollection of him floating around out there um, where, where he was, you know, he, he just took this neoconservative turn after September, September the 11th, and then just become like, like this fulminating anti-Muslim bigot. Well, that's just not true at all. I mean, he, he def when, when he called for NATO intervention in Bosnia, I mean, he was calling for the defense of, of a largely Muslim people from the Christian Orthodox um, imperialist and dictator next door. So um, there are just countless examples of this that you can run through that demonstrate that, you know, he was he was not a, a bigot. Yeah. Fair enough. So, so to answer your question, so that's a good question. I appreciate at least somebody has asked me uh, that question. I was always hoping that somebody would follow up with uh, with this question for my hypothesis. See, here's the thing. Uh, Western societies are not dominated by uh, Muslims demographically. They're still a minority. Whatever new atheism did, did not destroy all religions. It just destroyed the majority religion. It destroyed the majority fiber of that society. Western society... Uh, no matter how much people want to believe it, like when the American currency note says after 1950s, this came in, in God we trust. It's not Sri Ram. It's not Krishna. It is very <laughs> not, clearly. Not as far as I know. Yeah. There wasn't a whole yeah, lot of talk it, about Krishna and yeah, Slime Kansas yeah. growing up. No, no, it's not even Allah. It's mm -hmm. the Christian God. Let, let's be very categorical about it. England is not a secular country officially. It is a Christian nation officially. They behave in a secular manner, and that's fair enough. And and uh, I know people like to kind of tell themselves that, but they're not. Now, new atheism was an attack on the majority fabric of that society. It kept on doing it, kept on doing it, kept on doing it. And then the majority society lost their religion. The minorities never lost their religion. When the majority lost their religion, they picked up the new religion of wokeism. The new religion of wokeism has certain tenets. One of the core tenets of the new religion of wokeism is identitarian politics, where if you are in that oppression Olympic, Olympiad, to use the words of Faisal Sayyid al-Muttar, you know, who has translated a lot of uh, Richard Dawkins's work uh, in Arabic, you are eternally the victim. And that's why you have a free rider problem, if I was to use evolution, uh, evolutionary terms. The free rider is riding on this victimhood memeplex, and it has basically broken the back of Western liberalism because they can never be you know, victims. Ironically, the funniest bit in this entire issue is, and I always laugh about this, <laughs> the Hindus got successful because the Indians got successful in America. So the Hindus became white adjacent. <laughs> But every other community did not become. So it's clearly. So that's how it is what it is. So Islamism has broken the back of liberalism because if you are too liberal, you would have just said, I don't care if your sentiments are hurt. I, I always say this to, and India has blasphemy laws. Like you should read Indian laws like 295A, 153A. These are fantastic laws that can put me in jail. Uh, Section 124. And I'm just giving you three examples of the kind of rubbish that is peddled in India. But I still speak about it within certain parameters so that, I don't know, if they wanted me in jail, they would have put me in jail. I guess the government uh, of the day just does not want me in jail. Uh, a very dear friend of mine did go to jail once for absolutely stupid reasons. But the point is that 
this is what has happened it was not like the the natural fabric of western society was the islamic one and look at where new atheism is thriving today it is thriving in the ex muslim movement i don't know if you're aware of the ex muslim movement if you look at the arguments ex muslims give whether ex muslims of north america whether ex muslims just in canada in the united kingdom and in other parts of the western nations they are literally aping everything that dawkins and hitchens used to say and they just replace the christian god with the muslim god that's all they do so it's just that the roles have changed that's all i'm saying yeah um well th there are a couple of things to unpack so i it's difficult for me to see the sort of transition from christianity to wokeism that you're talking about if if that is happening i would say it's happening more in in europe more in britain because in the united states a lot of the people who are most staunchly opposed to wokeism are Christians and nationalists. I mean, this is like this is like one of the biggest political problems that we face is this sort of like mutual radicalization of the nationalist right and the sort of identitarian left. So, you know, somebody like um, Ron DeSantis wouldn't be able to go out there and beat the cultural drum if he didn't have a massive uh, Christian following, largely Christian following. I mean, all you have to do is look at the evangelicals in the United States, over 80% of whom uh, voted for Trump, um, at least among the ones who attend religious services uh, frequently. Um, it, it, all they cared about, all they cared about in the world was getting anti-abortion justices on the Supreme Court. I mean, that, 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 that was it. So it doesn't matter that Trump wants to overthrow American democracy. It doesn't matter that Trump wanted to ban Muslims from the country. It doesn't, none of that stuff that he wants to imprison people for burning the American flag, that he wanted to steal Iraq's oil. I mean, all, all this stuff, is a matter of the completest indifference to the people in the United States who claim to be the moral majority, the people who claim to lecture all of us about what's right and what's decent. Um, all they cared about was getting their justices on the Supreme Court and everything else can, can be cast by the wayside. Um, so in the United States, you know, if you say that the new atheism movement sort of like undermined traditional faiths and then people replaced those faiths with um with this woke garbage you know that could be true for some people i mean it could be true for someone but if you look at the mainstream um the mainstream faiths and the way that they manifest themselves politically in the united states uh, i would say that we're we're still facing or yeah we're facing the classic old sort of like radical but secular but still religious in tendency identitarian left against just the good old school like Christian nationalism, which is a long-standing tradition in the United States. Um, I, I don't know. I would say that in Britain, you probably do get a little like a bit more like wishy-washiness, like when it comes to Anglican priests who are like also like super progressive, like super woke. I mean, you'll definitely you'll definitely run into that in the United States too. Like there there are the cool churches. You know, like this is this is something that you just encounter time and time again, like churches that have like a really young youth pastor. And he's like, hey, man, I'm down with gay people. It's totally cool. Let's talk about Jesus. You know, like this is <laughs> this is like really this is really common. And I, I think it's just like a, it's just how religion adapts to the times. Um, but yeah, I I don't know, I, because I, I just see this resurgence of like identitarianism on both sides right now. So that's something that really worries me is like is when you see. And this is one of the core arguments of the book is that I feel like the left is now ill-equipped to respond to Trumpism, to respond to sort of like the, the populist right, um, because it's got its own authoritarian tendencies. And, and what you're talking about 
um, which is absolutely, which is absolutely a real phenomenon, um, which I, I do cover pretty much. I mean, I covered at length in the second chapter of the book. Uh, it's, it's this idea that is put forward by people like Robin D'Angelo and, and people like Ibram X. Kendi, that oh, like, like race is this immutable and eternal reality. We will all be subject to it forever. We will all hate, like, we, there will be race, racist and racial animosity until the end of time. And this is something that was really anathema to Hitchens because he always thought that humanity should be in principle capable of transcending race. Um, that still seems to me like the, the like liberal ambition, you know, but you don't have to, you don't have to deny any crimes of the past. You don't have to deny that the, the civil rights movement and the March on Washington had to take place in living memory. I mean, the, the Jim Crow laws existed in living memory. You don't have to deny the legacies of, of slavery, of any of these things, of the transatlantic slave trade, um, to recognize that maybe we should attempt eventually, someday, maybe 500 years from now, maybe 1,000 years from now, attempt to get past racial categories. You know, Sam Harris, who you mentioned earlier, always says that he thinks, he, he, he looks forward to a day where hopefully race will be treated in the same way that we treat people's eye color or hair color where it's just, it's just a matter of, of indifference. It just shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter when you're choosing somebody for a C-suite position. It shouldn't matter when you're choosing a politician or nominating a judge or anything. Um, you know, and I, I think some sort of identity-based uh, programs were necessary for a time. So like affirmative action was probably necessary when you just have so many um, like black Americans who aren't in like better schools. Like maybe you just need to overcorrect at some point, but I, does, does it have to exist for the next hundred years? Does it have to exist for the next 200 years? Like at what point should we take the sort of Bayard Rustin approach where we just let everybody have access to the best like public schooling we can find. And then we just let people sort of duke it out for positions in universities. Because the problem with a racial program as Hitchens, well, I shouldn't say Hitchens didn't write at length about affirmative action, but this, this point would be intelligible to somebody who made his arguments about identity politics. The problem with race-based programs is that they're zero sum. So if I say I'm going to choose um, black Americans to be, to be at Harvard, you know, then other groups will suffer. And this has actually happened in the United States. Asian Americans, for example, have to perform at a much, much higher level to get into these, to get into these programs, high level programs. They have to do much better on the SAT. They have to do, and that's like, that's how it's always going to be when, when you're, when you have a limited number of slots and then you're making decisions on the basis of race. So I, it's just, it's a difficult question because I have sympathy with the idea of getting diversity and getting representation higher. But at the same time, I just, we're balkanized by race and by, and by sexuality and, and by gender. And it's getting worse. It's just getting worse. It's gotten worse since 2015. It's gotten worse since the rise of Trump. So what's, where's the light at the end of this tunnel? Why, why is it that identitarianism is, is become, yeah, in some senses, sort of a new religion for a lot of people? Because you get the same amount of sanctimony. You get the same amount of commitment. You get the idea of original sin, even. Um, and it, it's 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 hard to it's hard to see it's hard to see us turning the corner anytime soon. Um, so I I do share I really do share your concern about identity politics, but I just still think that you know uh, Christianity is a powerful force in American politics, and the way it's being instrumentalized is alarming to me. I I don't like seeing it, and I don't like this new commitment to. Um, I don't want to say blood and soil nationalism just because that term carries too much baggage, but you know, movements like national conservatism, which is Yoram Hazoni's kind of outfit. Yeah. You'll see Douglas Murray standing on their platform and, you know, they invite Victor Orban and they invite the Le Pens to their, their events. And, you know, of course, of course it's gotta be, you gotta have all the, uh, all the, the greatest hits. 
Um, but this this worries me. It's this new reassertion of national identity. It's 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 that's the identitarianism of the right, you know, which is attempting to counteract the identity identitarianism of the left. I think both are toxic. I think both are are ugly in many ways. And I I, I really don't like national conservatism. If you if you have some sympathy with them, we can we can get into it. But um, yeah, that's it's I'm just, just trying to think. I'm just trying to think what is so wrong in an American liking America. And Nothing's wrong with that. Nothing's wrong with that. I, I mean, I, I consider myself quite patriotic. I'm actually about to move out of the country, and and in many ways, it, it breaks my heart. I mean, the idea of leaving the United States is 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 very depressing to me. Um, I, I, the United States, um, is the world's oldest secular representative democracy. I mean, there, there, you could make the argument that there, there are countries that have had democracy longer, but as a continuous system of government. The United States has probably got that, uh, probably got that locked down. But the thing is, a lot of the things that make America great are things that are universal. I mean, Thomas Jefferson, in his last letter, there's some historical debate as to whether this was his absolute last letter. Like maybe he wrote something else to someone, like asking them to like pick up eggs or something. But I don't, I, like, I, I, I don't really know. But in in what is largely thought to be his last letter, you know, he he has this beautiful line about the universalism of the American experiment. He says he's glad that people had um, that the, the Americans continued to embrace the system that was developed in, in you know, Philadelphia a few decades prior. Um, and he says, like, he hopes that it, it will one day be seen by all that, you know, the, the ability to sort of break the chains of, of, you know, God and King um, and, and establish your own self-determined democracy will be seen by all people. Like the value of this will be seen by everyone. He does, he does actually say this, it's this beautiful pain to, um, to universalism, right, right. As he's about to check out. You know, and Hitchens always made that argument about the United States. And he always said that he thought that the values of democracy and secularism and pluralism and, you know, constitutional order were very much for export. Um, so it's, Hitchens was certainly a, a man who he went from regarding patriotism as just infantile. <laughs> he went from regarding it as, as this, this like sort of toxic force in the world to embracing it. But he embraced it for universal reasons. That's why it's, it's, it's an irony. Um, and Hitchens was very committed to the concept of irony. Personally, I like I again. So you don't know me, so I'm not a nationalist or a patriot either. I, uh, but I'm sympathetic to the idea of people clinging on to the idea of a nation state, whether it's in a patriotic form or a. In the case of India, it's a civilizational state where they believe this is a continuous civilization of six thousand years, and different people have come into the civilization and immersed themselves into the fabric of the society, which includes Muslims too. So, uh. While I, I at a personal level, have gotten over all sorts of uh, attachments in that sense, and I, I'm all over the place, you know, sometimes I'm living in North America, sometimes I'm living here, but I, I kind of understand where people come from, and I'm not so alarmed. I, a lot of times, I think people just get emotional and say things, but when you poke them and then you ask, oh, do you believe this or you believe that? They just say no. We just we just don't want to be in a situation where we are constantly reminded of just the bad things our society has done. And we just don't want to be a self-hating person because everybody has a caricature of the other side. I observe American politics. In fact, one of my greatest learning lessons where I became, I don't hide my voting preferences. I've never hidden them. In fact, I believe as a podcast host, as someone who is speaking publicly, it's my moral responsibility that my audiences know what I vote for. That's just the way I think. Now, people can disagree with me and hide their voting patterns. I don't. 
But at the same time, I realized that when I used to follow American politics, it was the greatest lesson I learned in my life. That I used because I'm not emotionally attached to any political outfit in America. I don't care. It doesn't bother me. And then when I used to listen to both the sides in America, because there are literally two sides. I mean, I, I didn't make it. They made it the way they did. And uh, and I was like, oh, so these are their blind spots. And then it went from these are their blind spots to, oh, these are my blind spots. And then I corrected myself in that process. So, and, and that's how I just got over all of this. But having said that, I still see... The left caricature of the right in America is these, you know, Hitlerian people who are just going to do something. And the right's caricature of the left is they are going to break our society. They are going to break our borders. They are, you know, defund the police, open borders. Everybody comes in. And in reality, if you actually poll people, they may not disagree on many issues. But the discourse now is hijacked. But then who... Like Michael Shermer, and I know you discussed uh, your book with Shermer too. Um, do you, Michael Shermer likes to call this atheism plus, whatever is happening. It's not just atheism. It's atheism and then something happened. My point is that postmodernism as an epistemology is not new. It, it started in the late six, uh, early 60s. From there, it just kept on building. Like I read Robin D'Angelo and Ibram X. Kendi just for fun. And I was like, what the hell is going on here? I mean, there are words. They don't mean anything. I mean, they think they mean things, but there's just words there. I mean, it's a nice word salad. Uh, that's all I could say. And it scares me. But the point is, that is atheism plus, if you ask me. That is when you're you just being an atheist. Because in my opinion, atheists don't realize they have religious privilege. And let me explain what religious privilege is. They have the privilege of living in a society where most of the structures, even though they have become milder in form, are actually based on religious ar archetypes. So whatever you have, the notions, the vocabulary, our daily, like, oh my God, is just an example of an expression of for God's sake. Nobody says for goodness sake. Most of the people even today use the word for God's sake, I remember Douglas Murray just sometimes, sometime in a debate said, for God's sake, and, and then he just joked, oh, old habits die hard. Douglas Murray is an atheist himself. I don't know if people know about that. He's a very open atheist. He's been in atheistic debates against Majid Nawaz in Intelligence Squared years ago. That atheistic uh, religious privilege, when that went away, Something had to come and new atheism plus came. Why did the new atheists like Hitchens not see wokeism in, in their own societies and criticize it then is what I have never found a satisfactory answer to. Um, atheism plus is the sort of idea that I think I think it must have extended from the idea that there was like misogyny in, in the atheist movement and there was like some sort of maybe racism or I mean, did this what is that your understanding of it that it was like this? extension of these concerns about the movement itself and then those those concerns sort of manifested themselves in like a new political or social program among atheists or former atheists or what have you like is it i'm, I'm trying to get a, a handle on on the definition of atheism plus i've definitely heard the term before and i do get the sense that it's sort of one of those cases where you have a bunch of people who have this like radical position we're all we all have this in common we're all atheists and then there are like breaks within the movement as there always are um, and yeah. then people sort of, is that, is that your understanding of atheism plus? 
so i guess the the standard line would have been we're all just good old skeptics some some if i was to use the dawkins scale i don't know where you stand i definitely not i'm not a 6.7 or a 6.8 in the dawkins scale i would be somewhere around the 6 somebody would be on the 6.7 6.8 and some of us were just happy you know atheism was not the central part of our identity mm-hmm. for some people it did become a central part of their identity and then there was nothing left and then they looked for other paths to fulfill that gap and that was atheism plus a mechanism to pick you so so they become a trans activist or they become an lgbt activist or they become some other activist and that is atheism plus and that's how i think michael shermer also explains it so that's uh, like the have you heard of the amazing atheist he's some guy who's on youtube and he has his really popular videos yeah he's just like he's like a hardcore trans activist now he just sort of like takes every woke position and like holds it as you know as ferociously as possible it's it's kind of funny Um yeah I always thought it, I, even even when I was younger um I I probably went through that period uh where atheism was like central to my identity for like a couple years in college um and then it just it just falls away because to be perfectly honest it becomes boring I mean for it to be just like the driving force of of your of your world view um there's just a point at which and you sort of try to start cramming everything into that box and that's you know like it, it is kind of funny how how Hitchens um would sort of he would sort of fudge things and say like Martin Luther King wasn't really religious you know i mean he was he was he he was surrounded by secularists and he it, you know i don't want to i don't want to claim that hitchens is cuz i think he would hedge the statement i think he would say that martin luther king like i mean he he doesn't really know what's in the man's heart or whatever but he would speculate that he was more secular than he let on because he was surrounded by secularists and all these things and it was just, it's one of those situations where I would listen to Hitchens say something like this in a debate with a religious person. I'd be like just give them give them Martin Luther King. I mean the man he was a reverend and he he spoke in terms of um you know the the like the he he appealed to Americans on the basis of religion. There was there was no better thing for him to do. Uh, and I don't think it was cynical. I mean I think the man was a believer and it's just it's just one of those things where that sort of speculation is kind of alarming. It shows me that like he's like Hitchens was was willing to sort of like appropriate the historical record for his own purposes you know this is this really great moral tutor and activist martin luther king who we all look up to like well let's 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 like remind people that he was more secular than people think it's like do we have to do this do we have to just like do we have to like tally everything up on the atheism side versus the non atheism side this is this is an issue i think about often now because i i'm really attracted to the effective altruism movement i have been for a long time i was really heavily influenced by peter singer um in college kind of around the same time i was getting into hitchens um and i i feel like there there are potential alliances to be forged with uh christians who are already very accustomed to sort of like donating toward missionary organizations or or doing missionary work so they like sort of have the, the rest of the world on their minds but it's just in a way that I find unattractive. I don't think you should be I think you should, you know, focus on the developing world and focus on the people who make less than a dollar 90 a day without demanding that they read the Bible too or come to a, you know, confirmation lessons or something. Like I think you should just support them because they need help and they're human beings who are suffering. I kind of feel like you can make that case to American churches and you could kind of get them to invest money in really effective charities, you know, the Against Malaria Foundation or something. And this is another reason why getting on stage and going around and screaming at everybody about how everything they believe is bullshit and how everything they they hold most dear is is just like it, it just authoritarian um ancient garbage from the childhood of our species you know as Hitchens would put it it just 
it's that there are too many people who believe and there are too many like important alliances that need to be forged now. Like if I, I, I have a friend who's a very serious uh, believing Christian and he's, he's, he, I would, I would classify him as a, an evangelical. And um, he's one of the 20% of evangelicals who do not support Trump. I mean, he's one of the guys who, who just saw, you know, he saw the access uh, Hollywood tape. He saw the way Trump has treated his, his wives, his family, his businesses. He saw Trump university. This is a deeply unethical man. And um, this, this guy just recognized it. And he said, I, I can't support this, you know, but like, do I want, what do I care more about? Do I care about the fact that this guy is on my side when it comes to the most important political issue facing Americans today? Do I care about the, the fact that I disagree with him about God? It's, it really is. It's the former that I care most about, you know? So I, I just don't think burning the bridge. I don't think ripping his faith. And, you know, if I did, and we've had some disagreements about religion, like if I do attack his faith, it's not like he views it as some mortal wound. It's not like he, he regards it as as um, some deeply disrespectful thing. Because I think in many cases, disagreeing with people is the respectful thing to do. You think they have the capacity to reason and, and argue and all that. So I think, you know, you can make your case, but did you have to make the case like Hitchens made it? And I would say no. And I, I just wouldn't want it, I wouldn't want it to be the driving force of my politics. To get back to the point you made about like atheism plus, um, it just it just seems like such a stultifying uh, world to live in like political world to inhabit philosophical world where you're just like you're like the atheism guy like i'm just gonna like there were these people i remember in college i knew people who were just kind of like doing this professionally they were kind of like on the atheism circuit you know and then yeah i i do think that uh i do think that that can that can lead to radicalism in, in other areas because it, it it is kind of vacuous i mean eventually it feels like is this is this the only thing i want to do no it's not the only thing i want to do you know there's racism in the world and there's sexism in the world so i want to address those issues um one quick thing on, on douglas murray douglas murray is an atheist but he is he, he reminds me in some ways of of jordan peterson just in that he's he's an atheist who's deeply deeply reverent of um the christian traditions in in the west you know and this is something that you'll like encounter very frequently among people who who are sort of on either nominally on the right or who are sort of like attracted to the populist uh, sort of nationalist right like these are people who they 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 will say i can't bring myself to believe i can't bring myself to you know um to go to church every Sunday or actually in some case, I think Douglas Murray will like go to church. I think Jordan Peterson, I think they, they do occasionally, but they're just like, then they'll like give you this long, this long winded explanation of like the beauty of religion and the importance of religion and all these things. And sometimes I, I do just kind of want them to say, you know, you, you're trending toward Christianity. I mean, maybe, maybe you should just, maybe you should just uh, consider like going to church and becoming a Christian at some point because you have so much love for it, for the traditions. Uh, you have so much love for its necessity um, in society that, it, you know, I, I don't know. It almost it almost seems like this um, sort of throat clearing. Like, of course, I'm an atheist, but then here are all the reasons why, like, I have boundless respect for monotheistic tradition. And I, I do think in the West, we, we have to recognize that there are there are traditions that uh, counteract religion. I mean, there are elements of the Enlightenment that were explicitly sec secular. I mean, the United States does have the great wall of separation between um, faith and between uh, politics. So, it, it, you know, and that's, we can thank Jefferson for that. We can thank the Virginia statute for religious freedom for that. Um, and and I, I think that sometimes the Petersons of the world are a little too quick to dismiss those elements of our history, which were explicitly, like explicitly not anti-religion, 
but explicitly secular. And then they'll say, you know, like, where this is this is the water you swim in, and you're and you're rejecting your own traditions and you're rejecting your own history. Well, I mean, a, a significant part of my history is, you know, the pamphleteering of of Thomas Paine. I mean, it's it's the it's the sort of deism of Jefferson and the criticism of of religion that you can see in his work. I mean, I wouldn't say Jefferson was an atheist, but you know, he he was certainly critical of Christianity. Um, and there's there are a lot of examples of that throughout American history. So I, I don't think anybody has a monopoly on um, American traditions or or American political development. So that's 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 all I would say on that front. Um, yeah, jump in. For me, I think when I listen to discourse in America, I think both sides accuse the other side of the same things. I find it fascinating. And uh, I think both sides are assuming that the other side wants to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It, it, it's from what, what I get. Now, I've read Murray. I read two books of Jordan Peterson. I don't agree with Peterson's worldview at a personal level. I don't. I, I First of all, I think in Maps of Meaning, the way he has depicted Kali, the Indian goddess, is actually not at all what Kali is. And I mean, I, you know, I can give academic citations after academic citations of people who actually believe in Kali, who <laughs> will be like, wait, what? When did this happen? Like mm-hmm. recently, I saw some tweet by some dude in America saying, "Oh, do you know in 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 Indian philosophy there is some dualism where there is the Prakriti and the Purusha from the school of Sankhya, and they are putting the good and evil." I said, like, "I've read the Sankhya Karika in detail. There is no good and evil in this. You're just bringing your Christian sensibility in this." And uh, I call this the monotheistic blind spot because monotheistic cultures tend to absorb non-monotheistic cultures in a monotheistic way or and and this this blind spot exists on both sides the new atheistic side and uh, the religious uh, religious sides very interesting for me i'm sure i have those biases and when people talk to me when i discuss their cultures they would they would see my 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 hindu upbringing blind spots non-monotheistic blind spots too but eventually only discussions would would bring out a solution to this but for me, Jordan Peterson, like his answer, like I choose to live my life as if there is a God, I was criticized a lot. I personally think that's an absolutely legitimate position to have, to choose your life to live like there is a God. Because let me tell you, a lot of agnostics or atheists choose to live their life as if there is no God. They just don't say it. Peterson just said it. That he, he it gives him comfort. I don't know why. I'm not saying you do it, or I, I think Hitchens definitely did it. Hitchens would mock the idea of somebody believing in a god, like you believe in an imaginary creature. Well, it gives him comfort. What am I going to do? Yeah, I mean, with with Peterson, I I, I just I just can't help uh, I can't help getting the impression that he's he's playing games with words. You know, he he's not. <laughs> He, and he does this. He does this often. It's actually very hard to pin down what he actually thinks about God. Because if you, I, a great example that um, I've used in the past is when he was once asked if he believes in miracles. Do you do you believe in in the sort of divine? I mean, do you think that things have happened? That because what does that what does that question mean to you when you hear that question? When I hear that question, I'm thinking about water into wine. I'm thinking about walking on water. I'm thinking about being resurrected from the dead. Okay, I'm thinking about miracles. Everybody knows what the bloody word means. But Jordan Peterson says, he sits back and, you know, looks pensive for a second. 
and then says, um, render unto God that which is God's, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. There, that's a miracle. That's That was his response to the question. And that's like this line from, it's the line from the Bible that has, you know, it, it gives you sort of the framework for a separation of church and state. And a lot of people think that like the fact that that exists in the Bible has been this great engine of, of you know, secular pluralism for a long time, you know. Okay, fine. Um, it's, it's an attractive line from the Bible. Maybe it hasn't been used in that way. That he's not answering the question. He just, he just changed the subject. I mean, he just didn't bother to answer the question. And then Peterson's also somebody who, who will say, you know, let me tell you what happens to a society when it really takes atheism on board. Let me tell you what happens. Stalinism happens, you know, fascism happens. And, and I do, I do, this is an area where I do sort of feel like a Hitchensian sort of rage. Like, like I, I don't need Jordan Peterson to tell me that, and cause I grew up, I grew up in a, in a, a small town in, in the Midwest. I'm not sure where Jordan Peterson grew up. Um, I was surrounded by, by very fervent uh, religion. And I, you know, I don't need him to tell me that my rejection of that religion is the, the path to totalitarianism. It's the path to Nazism, you know, because it's not, it wasn't that, that wasn't the path for Thomas Paine. Um, that wasn't the path for Spinoza. It wasn't the path for Hume. I mean, there were a lot of figures throughout history who were managed, managed to question the dogmas and, and in some cases just become outright atheists themselves without just, you, you don't have to suddenly, like you're now you're on you're, you're just descending into um, the sort of like totalitarian rage against God where you need, you need everybody to think the way you do. And you need to, and like, I just think it's one of the oldest uh, canards of Christian apologetics that, you know, if you just want to see how horrible atheism can get, you know, just look at the 20th century, look at the horrors of the 20th century. And this is just something that Peterson says, he says it as if it's a novel point. I mean, it's every, every single browbeating, boring pastor you know, from Dayton, Ohio to Dallas, we'll make that argument. We'll, we'll say it's, and so, and it's, it, it is insulting. And, you know, there is such a thing as humanism and there's a humanist tradition that does extend from the enlightenment that, that Hitchens certainly observe. So then you have Peterson out there saying, you know, maybe, I may not be a believer myself, but by God, if we lost this, then what we would have is, is a eternity of, of pain. We'd have our own hell on earth. He always likes to tell us that like hell really exists, you know, and just give, give atheists, give atheists the reins and, and you'll be, uh, you'll be galloping toward that hell. I just, I mean, it's all too, it's all too much. It's all too. Um, and it's also like, of course it appeals to his audience. His audience is largely on the right now. I mean, that might not have been the case a few years ago. Well, it is now. I mean, the guy does videos for the daily wire. He's constantly talking about how, you know, I wrote this article for the daily beast um, a few months ago about this article that Peterson wrote, I think in the telegraph, where he said that Deloitte and other, you know, he was focusing on Deloitte, you know, just the big accounting firm and consultancy firm, and said that, you know, they, they're forcing these climate change regulations down our throats. And this is going to lead to a mass uprising around the world. And it's going to lead to just millions of deaths. And people are going to shut off power plants and, and the developing world. And they're going to, it, it was this truly, I, I tell you this honestly, it was a truly unhinged rant. And it's the sort of rant that you'll, you'll get from like the, the, ugly sides of the populist right in the United States. So of course he's on the Daily Wire. Of course he's on Ben Shapiro's outfit now. And of course he's talking about like how atheists will destroy the world because you know that his audience loves that. So I mean I'm sorry if that sounds a little too cynical, but my God. I mean I, I just don't because I agree with you. I think you're right about the stridency of the new atheism movement. I really do. I mean there was a point at which Richard Dawkins wanted to call uh, atheists brights. I think that was Dawkins. It was Dennett. It was one of those guys 
And Hitchens rejected that idea. He's like, this is this is really stupid. I mean, this is like, is there anything more insulting? <laughs> because it's just like, and as Hitchens said, it, it's not the argument. It's not that religious people are stupid. I mean, I've met a lot of religious people who are more intelligent than me. You know, it's just that it's just that, you know, I don't I, I don't subscribe to any religion. And it is always you, trust me, you can't get away from it in the U.S. And there is this constant whinge from from Christians. And they'll always say, oh, our society is becoming more Christianophobic, you know, and Starbucks wishes people marry Xmas. And, you know, and they don't have it's just like this, instead of having like you, you are not a put upon minority. If you're a Christian in the United States, I promise <laughs> like you're, you're okay. Still, you're, you still have a lot of, uh, of supporters and a lot of solidarity, great well of solidarity to draw upon. Yeah. But to me, Peterson, just as a last passing remark, I think, you know, it's very interesting that he criticizes postmodernism for some odd reason. He sounds very postmodern to me personally. Yeah. That's like it's all, yeah, yeah, it's he weird. sounds so postmodern to me as a, because at the end of the day, this is the crux of the problem. It doesn't matter where the bullshit comes from. The bullshit could come from religion. The bullshit could come from the secularist side. If you want to call bullshit out, you should not be attached. And you just call the bullshit. And you can still be religious. I, I actually agree with you. I believe we are all selectively rational. All of us. In differing degrees. We are rational on some points, then some points where our tribal identity trumps our, uh, uh, you know, rational side. We we just choose to ignore the points or or in some cases, we are so smart, we somehow find the angle to rationalize our position for our side. It It, it is what it is. We, we At the end of the day, we are, you know, we, we need some group to cling on to. And I think that's, uh, and ca catastrophism is something that makes you money on social media. So I I kind of get it. Whether it's done by right-wing pundits, it's not like the right does it. I mean, the kind of catastrophism, even on climate change, that is done on the left in America. It's not like I have not read the report. I have read the report. <laughs> We're not going to die the next day. We, we are. And, you know, sometimes they'll be preachy to India. I mean, India has worked on solar power far more than most of these countries have. Now, no, you should stop this. You should stop that. It doesn't work like that. You, and this is where something, maybe we can have this as the last topic because Christopher Hitchens had, you know, I was not bothered about Hitchens' new atheism as much as I was bothered about anything that has the word globalism or internationalism attached in it. And maybe I can put my point across first as an Indian. There is a hierarchy in this world. People may not like to accept that. You know, it is all good and fine and dandy to say, the world is one family. Yeah, even Hinduism has that one Sanskrit verse called Vasudhaiva Kutumbakam. It means literally the world is one family. Well, the world is not one family. Otherwise, Hitler is my family member. He clearly is not. I don't want the world to be one family. I just want the world to have equal opportunities and rights for everyone. As long as I'm left alone, I'm, <laughs> I'm happy. I don't cling on to this, you know, romantic notion that people have no, you and me, whether you're in America, I am in India, we are all one. No, we're not. America is the world policeman. Like it or not, they are. They police things everywhere. I find it deeply disturbing because if tomorrow my country becomes the dominant economic powerhouse, we're going to do the same thing. And then policies and values that emanate from my mind are going to be interfering in everyone. So for me, the biggest... like. 
does does this mean i'm a moral relativist no there are some things like human rights free speech and everything i would actually agree that all humanity can agree upon but it never ends there because the american court freedom and democracy project is very dangerous for me as an indian because i have been on the receiving end of the other side right now as of now india indo american relations are at very good you know at at a very good stage but there was the 1970s where india and pakistan the bangladesh liberation war was fought and america was on the other side so an indian will always have a skeptical memory of this conceptually that that is what i am trying to say and when people like hitchens used to talk about internationalism especially it used to scare me a lot as someone as much as i believe in freedom of speech and liberalism but i want to do things myself i don't like the idea of american companies dictating indian discussions is what i'm trying to say yeah well there are a few things to definitely a few things to unpack there first of all i will say when it comes to climate change since that's sort of where we started um i do recognize the value of the argument made by people like michael schellenberger that you know you development has to come first in many cases um if if you are going to impose sort of climate regulations on the developing world um say say like you know brazil like did a lot of logging under bolsonaro that's the sort of thing that you'll you'll get a lot of criticism from from the left on and get a lot of criticism from even just centrists you know who care about climate change and care about preserving the rainforest like i i totally get that it's it's horrifying to me to to watch you know great old growth forests get to, ripped to the ground um but at the same time if you want these things to be um politically viable if you want the the idea of an international push toward uh, climate change regulation to actually work you need to respect the fact that there are a lot of people who have next to nothing in the world and they need development they need development like crazy and it's very easy for them to look at the west and say you went through your industrial revolution where you were pumping soot into the atmosphere and now we're trying to develop and you're telling us no 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 you you really need to ease up on that so the question there is more of a technocratic question like how can we do that more effectively is is nuclear power the answer i'm a big booster of nuclear power myself uh just because i think it scales so much better than than alternative energies like um solar and, and wind power but not an expert on the subject but you know it, this is one of those things where i i totally understand the the reluctance to accept the sort of like western um the western position on something like climate change you know and that's that's where jordan peterson is probably uh singing a pretty reasonable tune on that front um when it comes to the united states sort of foisting its values on on people and and the sort of internationalism as as imperialism or as as sort of as 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 just like a denial of self-determination and rights for other countries um i totally respect where you're coming from there i really do i i can i can imagine that somebody reading my book would come away with that same feeling that you have where like like this guy is saying this is universal and this is universal and everyone should do this and everyone should do that but what what are the political correlates of that what are the geopolitical correlates of that and a lot of people say well it's the iraq war that's what you get you know you get these people like like trumpeting universal values and they end up invading the sovereign country and look at the look at the consequences not even just the the horrific war that lasted for almost a decade but then the rise of the islamic state afterward and and so on and so forth um the, these are arguments that it, somebody reading my book might not understand that i actually fully appreciate i really do and i always have um and you know people like yoram hazoni who's a uh, uh, the sort of head of uh, national conservatism makes the argument that universalism is is it's the cry of the imperialist and always has been so like it's the same thing that the roman empire was saying 
saying we have the universal values, we have the answers, we just have to enlighten the rest of the world. Um, so the, the tendency toward that sort of thinking is definitely very strong among people on, on a sort of my side, I guess, of the universalism question, if you want to call it that. Um, but this is actually a part of Hitchens's politics that I found very attractive. For example, he was um, extremely invested in the European project. So he was a really strong supporter of the EU. And there are people like Murray and a lot of conservatives who, for, for reasons that I think are in many cases defensible, they say, you know, Brexit had to happen because we want to run our own country. We don't want bureaucrats in Brussels to be making decisions for us. I totally get that. And the, the, to, to accomplish a lot of things on the global stage, some surrender of sovereignty is always necessary. And for an American to say that, I'm sure it's, it sounds, it's got to sound self-serving to a lot of the world because the United States will say, oh, we, we have to hold Putin accountable for his crimes or we have to hold uh, Osama bin Laden accountable or Slobodan Milosevic, you know, but the United States is also the country that passed what, what is colloquially referred to as the Hague Invasion Act, which basically just states that, I think this was passed during the Bush administration, if an American official uh, say Henry Kissinger, for example, is held at the Hague, you know, for war crimes or whatever. Then the United States sort of reserves the right to go in there and get him out, you know. And you you don't you don't have to read into that too much, but you know, it's kind of like 101st Airborne is going in to get him out. So the United States, it, this was one of Hitch's core arguments when he wrote the the trial of Henry Kissinger, is that the United States wants to foist these standards on the rest of the world, but we refuse to hold ourselves to these standards. Can you imagine? You know, we say. We want to see Slobodan Milosevic in the dock. Okay, great. Can you imagine an American in the dock? You know, Storm and Norman Schwarzkopf or something after uh, the Gulf War, um, going to some international tribunal and being judged and then maybe being convicted, maybe being imprisoned. I mean, it's it's an insane thought. Like, it's not, it, Americans wouldn't allow it. They simply wouldn't allow it. Our political system would roundly reject it. You know, I really love the EU. Um, and I think it's a it's an important internationalist project, and I think it's it's underrated how successful it's been. Um, you know, I, I cite in the book uh, a line from Robert Wright from his book Non-Zero, um, where he said, "If you had told somebody in you know 1946 that Germany and France would have the same currency, you know, decades later, then the, the question would have been who invaded who, you know, and who won the war." I mean, so it's I think it's rather extraordinary that this internationalist project has worked as well as it has, um, but at the same time. Yeah, there's a problem of democracy at the EU. I mean, there's a problem, like when you elect your people and send them to the EU parliament, okay, that's fine. But then the actual process of, of producing bills and producing binding regulations that apply to all of the countries in the union um, is quite opaque. It's extremely technocratic. Um, and this does remove, it removes decision-making power from, from national publics across the continent. Um, so again, I'm bullish on the EU, but I recognize that's a huge problem. The question is, how can we make these things more representative, more democratic, more transparent? Um, and then in the case of the United States, I, I am sympathetic to the Iraq war. Um, and if you do look at the, the conditions that pervade in Iraq now, I mean, despite the massive corruption and the massive amount of problems and the fact that Iran still has a lot of influence in the country that they actually didn't have pre-2003. That's one, one of those geopolitical costs that the United States probably um, didn't appreciate when it invaded. Um, but at the same time, Iraq does have, a, it's, it's a democracy that functions. I mean, it's, it's, it's largely legitimate elections. It does have some hope of eventually developing into a more self-determined state. And the United States role in Iraq is vastly diminished now. Our role in Afghanistan is non-existent now. Um, I don't think many imperial powers would invade countries and then start desperately, you know, kicking the, like, like, like desperately searching for a timetable for withdrawal, which is what the United States always does. 
we're, we're you know, I, I think I remember Neil Ferguson making this argument like 2004. He's like, the United States is is kind of constructing its its own empire, but they don't have the stomach for it. They're not like the Brits. They're not going to stay. They're not going to send, you know, public servants to these countries. They're not going to learn the languages or stick around long enough. And that is sort of historically politically true about the United States. I mean, if you're going to invade Iraq, you 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 obviously have a responsibility to rebuild Iraq. And I just kind of feel like we're, we're extremely bad at it, you know. So like these these are all tensions and they're all good reasons to criticize Hitchens. But at the same time, I, I think that the core point that we need to move toward a system like I think it's good that Slobodan Milosevic um, was held accountable by the international community. I think it's good that his forces were expelled from Bosnia. I, I think it was good that there was a tribunal for for war criminals and genocidaires in Rwanda, you know, and to see to see, you know, Serbian generals like in, in the dock. I think this is good, actually. Yeah. And I, I think the, the deal is that if the United States has public officials who've committed crimes, um, they should be held accountable in the exact same way, the exact same way. I, I think there should be no inconsistency there. If we're going to push for the project, we need to hold ourselves to it. So that that's the balance I would try to find there. But I, I do I do respect your your concerns about sovereignty. And, and you know, I, I, I just I, I am a universalist and I do. But I, it comes from a place where I, I think a lot of Americans um, will say a lot of American politicians will say that like what matters most is like the welfare of the American worker or something like that. So you'll even get the hard left, like Bernie Sanders will say, you know, we, we're not, we're not all on board with globalization and free trade. Like this is too harmful for American workers. But I do always think about the countries that could really benefit from American capital. And like, even when it's not dictatorial capital, it's just, just a matter of sort of building a factory and giving people jobs. I mean, you will find that people do prefer that to subsistence farming. So, I mean, the extent to which that actually alleviates human suffering, I think it is actually a good thing. And that might make me sound extremely retrograde. But again, it, this is, it's one of those conversations. We could have started the pot, podcast with it and, and probably gone on for, for many hours on that subject alone. But yeah, no, it was, it was a great one to end on if we are getting up toward the end. I don't know. Yeah. So just to just to clarify, I am a universalist in terms of values. I do believe human values can be universal. I'm just not an internationalist. I just like to be left alone is what I'm <laughs> trying to say that I, I, I'm very wary of the idea of a very dominating top heavy kind of a system where because people see people have not seen a top heavy system in America. America is a completely bottom up society. Americans don't realize that India is not. So when, when you live in that society, secondly, no matter what, are American free speech laws better than Indian free speech laws? Yes. And unequivocal, yes. But I still don't want an American to fix it for me. I will mm -hmm. fix it as an Indian. I don't want them to do it for me. And, uh, and people accuse me of being very pro-America for the record. I'm like this pro-America Indian and I am. I don't even hide it. I am actually very pro-West on average. If somebody says, you know, that on, on every scale, the America, uh, American uh, order or the Canadians or, or the, the Western European nations or the United Kingdom uh, and China are the same. No, they're not. I think certain societies are better. The Western societies are better. <laughs> there, there is a reason why in spite of China and its economic growth, I would pick India 100 out of 100 times because we are a democracy. We are a better system. India is a better system. 
which is why every time somebody has this imaginary uh, orgasm about some monarchical uh, idea even in india i'm like you guys are crazy you guys don't i have any idea how how shitty that system is but while i can believe in an objective moral framework i can still say leave me alone and respect my sovereignty as a nation state because everybody has their own right to their own journey i hope i'm able to explain myself yeah no uh, definitely um i i will say that you know for what it's worth hitchens was very bullish on india he was very pro india he always thought the united states was overlooking india as an ally in in the region and he always thought that one of the greatest things about Orwell's time at the BBC was his willingness to bring um, Indian writers onto his his show and interview them, you know, for the BBC's Indian service. And for um, I, I know that it was the Indian service, so it makes sense that Indian writers would be coming on the show. But Orwell always claimed, apparently, that there would be like this gigantic genre of English literature um, where Indians were writing in English, which has proven to be true. I mean, you just have to look at Salman Rushdie. Um, and, and, so, and so many other like wonderful Indian writers. So I, I will say that Hitchens always sort of had, I think, some affinity uh, with India. And he recognizes it's the largest, the largest democracy on earth. Um, and I, I think India actually just surpassed China in, in population, you know. So I, I think it, it could very well be, and we always talk about, you know, the Chinese century and the American century, and, you know, it could be an Indian century. Like, it's just, it, it's just one of those things that, um, that I think Hitchens was probably pretty prescient on. I mean, I think he was he was right to to urge the United States to be because we we always we always regarded Pakistan as like this critical ally in, in the fight against terrorism. But Pakistan was look look what happened Pakistan, there. But it was you know in, in so many ways like yeah it, it like the amount of um, the amount of Al Qaeda or Taliban sympathizers or even like sort of members of the Taliban who were like part of the Haqqani network like like, like it, it was it was a staggering number. And Hitchens would always say we're just getting taken for a ride here. You know, I mean, we found we found in London a Badabad, you know, like it's this is like, you know, it's like close to their West Point. You know, it's one of those things where it, it is just always so he was always cynical about the or pessimistic about the relationship. With, but I, I, by the way, I don't want to present it as, you know, Hitchens said, oh, why, look, you're supporting Pakistan. You need to support India like everything's a zero sum game. You know, I'm, I'm sure there are people in it's Pakistan never... that you need to support as well. But it's just it's, you yeah, know, yeah. It, it's one of those it's one of those things where, uh, yeah, I. I I think I think your your concerns about sovereignty are, are very well founded, and you know I'm sure there are people in um, South America, in in Chile, for example, who would would be very alarmed by the sort of universalist rhetoric I use, where I'm talking about the United States having a more robust role in the world. And this, I'm I'm actually glad we had this conversation. You know, a lot of the people who've who've read the book and who've commented on it on Reddit, they're never going to hear this. They won't, they won't listen to like all my stuff, you know, but they just think that I'm, you know, this neocon defender of the, uh, the great American <laughs> Imperium, you know, and I'm, I'm really not. I mean, I, I do, I do recognize that these concerns are, are extremely well-founded, you know, but I, I do just think that like, at some point you, you said that the United States is a bottom up society in many ways, that's true, but the United States also has a pretty strong state. Like if you, if you read Fukuyama, you'll, you'll see that like one of the preconditions for a state that actually functions is like, uh, is an authority at the top and a bureaucracy that's competent and a state that can make and implement laws effectively. And that's what the United States has that there's no question. And it's just like a constant source of, of dread and insecurity for libertarians and people on the right in the U S um, but I do think that security is kind of this baseline for humanity. So to the extent that we could get, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about getting India 
and other countries on board with certain things that the United States tries to do in the world. Like when you said you just want your sovereignty, your right to make your own decisions, that's something every Indian you know should want. And I totally respect that. Americans would expect nothing less. But at the same time, I do think that the point comes when 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 there's a genocide happening in Rwanda. And when 800,000 people were killed in 90 days, I don't give a fuck about Rwanda's uh, sovereignty in that case. Like, I, I really don't. I, I think the United States should have, we vetoed a resolution at the UN that just called for us to strengthen the U, UN contingent. We didn't even do that. Had we sent in the troops, you know, we probably could have saved hundreds of thousands of lives. We didn't do it. And, and you know, in some cases, when it's a, sta- a case of complete state collapse or just complete, um, like, like wholesale massacre of civilian populations, Sovereignty does not matter to me anymore. I'm sorry. I, I get that point. I do not care anymore. So that's that's like the really hard line that I, I draw. And I, I know some cases will be tougher than others. You know, Kosovo is going to be a harder case than Rwanda. Iraq is a harder case than Rwanda because it's less clear. Um, but but then yeah. how would you justify the American withdrawal from Afghanistan now? Well, I wouldn't justify it. I actually thought it was a terrible decision <laughs> because we only had okay. we only had a couple thousand troops there. And we had a, a, like, here's the problem. When the United States leaves, that means all NATO forces leave. Um, it means all NGOs leave. It's like, it, like ab- Afghanistan was completely abandoned by its international partners. And I think the amount of commitment that we had to Afghanistan when Biden took office was so low that it, it was worth just maintaining, just attempting to maintain the status quo. I mean, the United States has had tens of thousands of troops in East Asia for decades. We've had tens of thousands of troops in Japan and and South Korea for a very long time. It's, it's a part of the sort of American security umbrella that you know, a, a lot of people in those societies are deeply critical of it, but the governments have generally seen it as probably um, as probably worth preserving. Um, but in Afghanistan, I just don't see why we couldn't have had something similar where we just stay sort of indefinitely and att- attempt to help them uh, build stronger security forces and, and build up their civil society, which, I mean, there were, and there were gains in Afghanistan. People don't, don't seem to care that maternal mortality dropped dramatically, that the number of girls in schools uh, increased dramatically. Like the, none of these things seem to carry to the sort of anti-imperialist left um, in the United States. Um, but yeah, I, I do think that pulling out was was a, a very um, and the way we did it was so ham-fisted and stupid. And it's just it could have taken place over a much longer period of time. There didn't have to be that bombing at the at the airport in Kabul uh, that killed a lot of people. And uh, you know, I just. I get, I, you know, call me an, an imperialist if you want, but like, you know, a couple thousand American troops in Afghanistan seems to me a small price to pay to try to consolidate the gains that, that were made in that country. But So well, somebody had asked this uh, question, and I'm just reading it from the live stream itself. Isn't the return to Hitchens an appeal to the, the return to the past, like some libertarians ask for, quote, the American frontier spirit? <laughs> frontier spirit? Um I don't know. There is a there is kind of a frontier spirit uh, to to Hitchens. Like he's he is he is a bygone figure or a figure from a bygone era in some ways. I mean, just like the hard drinking, hard smoking, bohemian sort of ripping polemicist. You know, I do I do kind of feel like I do kind of feel like um, Hitchens's age of of intellectual stardom is probably at an end. You know, it's it's I, I think our yeah, I think I don't think heterodoxy is really in vogue at the moment. Well, it kind of is because there are a lot of people who claim to be heterodox, but then they usually just end up sounding like apologists for the right. But anyway, the frontier spirit, I don't know. I'd have to unpack the question a little bit to sort of figure out. Like, I mean, Hitchens always, he, he always, uh, when he wrote about Thomas Jefferson, he he uh, wrote about the fact that Jefferson like doubled the size of the United States for like pennies on the dollar with the Louisiana Purchase. 
So I think Kitchens was uh, I think Kitchens was glad that the United States became a transcontinental power. But that's one of those things where to become a transcontinental power, what did the U.S. have to do? What did it have to do to native populations? What did it have to do? A lot of horrible shit. So it, it's like, yeah, Hitchens kind of had this. I don't know. He was he was a materialist, and he would look at history through the lens of of outcomes. And you know, he he would say things that to our sort of modern modern ears would would probably sound quite reactionary. You know, I mean, Hitchens, one of the reasons he loved, or one of the reasons he thought Orwell's uh, actually had some pretty conservative tendencies, you know, Orwell really valued patriotism in many ways and recognized the, the force and power of nationalism. And he sort of recognized like traditional Englishness as this, because Orwell thought during World War II that there would be this um, socialist revolution, you know, like now's the time, get the people together. And he was just shocked at the fact that they all were able to sort of rally around the flag and, and keep, keep on keeping on, as the British would say. Um, but yeah, so I think Hitchens kind of had some of those slightly conservative tendencies too. He would sometime sometimes attribute them to his naval upbringing. Um, and yeah, that's maybe there's a, maybe there's an element of the frontier spirit in there. I don't know. Well, uh, that, that would be interesting, Matt. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I really enjoyed reading your book. I am, uh, um, you know, I'm an old, uh, Hitchens reader. So when I read this book of yours, and you know, I used to, I, I read you on Quillette. That's when I figure found out uh, about you and your work. So I, I, and I really liked your articles. And then I was happy to see you on Michael Shermer's podcast because I listen to Shermer regularly. And that's when I was like, okay, let me uh, quickly listen to your book. I mean, uh, luckily your book has an audible, audible version in India. Yeah. Too, yeah. Because I think it's more yeah, popular so, than the heart, like the paperback version. It seems to be doing yeah, a lot better so, if people like to listen to it. I don't know. Yeah. No, and some books I just think are better when you listen to them. I, I thoroughly enjoyed your book, especially, you know, with a person like Hitchens, when you have the hitch slaps or the powerful Hitchens quotes, when you're listening to them, they leave an impact on you. There's just something dramatic about what uh, Christopher Hitchens used to do. So, man, I, I really enjoyed uh, listening to your book. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, I wish you all the best for all your future work. And hopefully you'll write another book soon and I'll call you again. Hey, that sounds good, man. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Really good conversation. All right, guys, we'll wrap this discussion up, but I'll leave you guys with the best, I think, hit slap ever. Or it is famously called the Hitchens Razor, where Hitchens used to say that what is asserted without evidence can be equally dismissed without evidence. I think that was one of the greatest responses that... Christopher Hitchens ever came up with. Did I agree with Christopher Hitchens? Uh, dislike for religion no but when he called uh the biblical heaven celestial north korea i have to say i laughed <laughs> i just i couldn't c c control myself i i really laughed a lot yeah that's a classic line uh, I, was like, I was like how could you think you know a person like me who is a content creator who's a public speaker i mean or he'd always describe in the inverse case, he would describe North Korea as a as a religious state, which nobody thinks of it in that sense. And he would say, "There's a father, there's a son. It's one short of a trinity." I think is how he put it. And he'd always say that like the father is still technically the head of state, so he'd call it like a mausolocracy or necrocracy. So yeah, there there it's it's got some religious elements as well. Yeah, in keeping yeah. with the theme of the conversation, religion yeah. creeps in. It, yeah, it it is. I have to say, it is so funny, but. It's all fun, guys. Please follow Matt on Twitter. I have his social media handle in the description. 
the link to buy the book is also in the description of the podcast so it doesn't matter if you're listening to the audio only version or you're watching this on youtube go and buy this book christopher hitchens is someone everybody should listen to and read it doesn't matter if you're a religious person or an irreligious person but you will learn a lot from christopher hitchens he is one of my favorite writers christopher hitchens and george carlin are two thinkers in the west who had a lot of impact on me and michael shermer i would say michael shermer is the third one i i would uh, listen to their talks or read their material a lot so go buy this book and please support the charvak podcast like this video write a few comments in the comment section and subscribe to the channel if you want to support me please become a member it doesn't matter if you're on youtube or patreon or on fanmo buy the merch i'll see you guys next time until then namaste take care bye